Today on Against the Grain, prisons, jails, immigrant detention centers, we know them as places of unfreedom, but we don't often think about them as places of work. Yet compulsory labor is a key part of incarceration in this country. Sociologist Erin Hatton joins me to talk about the state of coerced work in prisons, the lack of worker protections, and how work has been used as a way of dampening prisoner activism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. When we think of labor in this country, we don't tend to think about prisons. But given how many people are incarcerated in the United States, and given that most prisoners are compelled to work, the incarcerated make up a significant population of American workers. Yet until now, the working lives of prisoners have been little interrogated. A new volume aims to change that. It's called Labor and Punishment, Work in and Out of Prison, and it's published by UC Press. I'm joined by its editor, Aaron Hatton, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. Aaron, I realize this is difficult given a lack of data, but I wonder if you could give us a sense of the scale of the prison population engaged in labor and what sorts of work do prisoners do? That's a really good question. And it's really a good question because we just don't fully know. Um, and I would suggest that we don't know by design. No one is um, tracking that data. No one's uh, accumulating what prisoners are doing, how many are working across the different types of prisons in states and the US. Um, so as far as I can tell, from what data we do have, and that's cobbling together a whole bunch of disparate bits of data from here and there and elsewhere. Um, we know that most prisoners are required to work um, as part and parcel of their incarceration. Um, we also know that some prisoners who might want jobs don't get them. So it's not that all prisoners work, but for the most part, people in prisons, and it's less often when they're in jails, um, they are required to work if they are able-bodied. Um, and typically, those workers perform the various types of relatively mundane labor that keep the institution running. So they do all the cleaning for the institution. They do um, the landscaping or the, the grounds upkeep. They um, do the cooking and serving in the kitchen. They do a lot of the work, work which you would have to pay, you know, pretty handsomely for if you're hiring civilian workers, but all of the work that keeps these institutions running um, day in and day out. And of course, they also do other types of jobs as well. For instance, we know in the state of California and other states out west, they uh, fight fires. Um, so there are lots of different jobs that prisoners or incarcerated workers perform, but for the most part, they're upkeeping the institutions where they live. Is there a difference between the kind of work that prisoners do in public sector prisons, which are the majority, versus private sector prisons? Again, we don't really have data that tells us for sure, um, but it does seem to be more likely that prison prisoners in private sector prisons who are, you know, that are privately owned and run for profit, um, they tend to be more likely to be contracted out to private companies. Um, so they may actually be working for a corporation. And in those instances, those incarcerated workers are supposed to get at least the minimum wage. Um, though we also know that those workers, um, are those wages are subject to a whole host of fees. Um, so they may have to pay restitution fees. Some prisons actually charge them for the cost of their incarceration. They may have to um, pay for use of internet or use of the phone to call their families. And these fees really add up. So they cut into those wages pretty significantly. Well, let me ask you about those wages. It might surprise some people how much discretion that states have over the people who they hold incarcerated in those states. Tell us about the degree to which workers are or are not compensated for their work and how it varies. 
yes, there is in fact huge variability across states in terms of incarcerated workers' uh, remuneration. So in some states, they receive nothing for their labor. Um, this includes states such as Georgia, where I'm from. Um, all able-bodied prisoners are absolutely required to work and they are not paid for the work that they perform for Georgia state prisons. Um, here in New York, where I live, um, there is a range in wages and there's a range in wages in many states. So um, there's the lower wages are reserved for those um, institutional upkeep jobs that I've already described. In New York State, they earn between roughly between 10 cents and 33 cents an hour for that work. Um, so they might bring home maybe 10 to 13 dollars every two weeks. Um, again, those wages can be subject to various fees and also just the cost of living behind bars. You know, they have to buy their own um, deodorant or, or toothpaste from the commissary. So in other states, they might earn a bit more, um, you know, and I believe there's one state in which um, they can earn as much as $5 an hour for their basic institutional labor, but that's quite rare. For the most part, on average, prisoners earn around 25 cents an hour. And that, I should say, that average is excluding those states in which they earn nothing for their labor, right? Because that zero cents an hour would really bring down that average. Um, and then they may earn a bit more for higher status jobs, um, including jobs in which they work for private companies. Like I said, they're supposed to get the minimum wage for those jobs. Also, um, jobs such as um, fighting fires in California, where they do earn higher wages when they're actively on a fire line, and then also slightly less but still higher than working the wages they earn behind bars in the prison when they're not on an active fire line but doing other kinds of work to uh, prevent the fire from spreading. Obviously, prisoners do not get wages as set by labor law for the rest of the unincarcerated population. Do prisoners receive any protections under labor law? For the most part, no. Um, so through some resistance and litigation, they have won um, modest protections. So, you know, in New York State, for example, and this activism really came out of and was part and parcel of the Attica uprising, um, they won and pushed back against discrimination in terms of job assignments and job treatment in New York State prisons. And so now by law, they are not allowed to be discriminated against in terms of um, different races being assigned to different jobs and lower status jobs in particular for African-American prisoners. Um, so there is some protection. Now this protection is not under labor law per se, right? Because they are not legally classified as employees under employment laws, such as um, the Fair Labor Standards Act and um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They don't get that protection. They're not employees, legally speaking, but they have gained some other modest protections, such as, you know, ostensibly freedom from discrimination under other laws that have been passed to protect them through their, through their resistance, through their pushing for change. What compels workers to work if they don't want to? Because much of this work is compulsory. That's right. The work is compulsory. But I should say that many prisoners also embrace this work, and they do so for various reasons. Um, one is that working, especially when the job is okay, it can be um, a very important way to pass the time to to not go kind of crazy when if you're just if you have nothing to do or you're not allowed to do anything day in and day out you don't have perhaps enough programming you're not allowed to attend school or college classes maybe there's not enough books in the prison library there's a real dearth of things of of constructive activities for incarcerated people to do and work is one of those things that is provided for them um so some incarcerated people at least saw it as an important opportunity, a way to get by, and even a way to contribute. And I should note that, you know, incarcerated people are just like other Americans. And as a culture, we believe very deeply and profoundly in the importance and dignity of labor. 
And people living behind bars believe in that too. And so many wanted to work, um, to pass the time, to contribute, to feel like a contributing member of society, even if they weren't seen as such or treated as such. Now, with all that said, it is also true at the very same time that prison labor working behind bars is compulsory. And if they don't do it, most of the time they're going to suffer and they're going to suffer in a variety of ways. Um, typically, you know, the most common consequence for incarcerated people, if they don't do what a corrections officer tells them to do, right? Not following a direct order is a very significant problem. And of course they're ordered to work, right? Getting up, fulfilling your job assignment, being there on time and doing what you're supposed to be doing during that assignment, those are all orders. If you don't fulfill a direct order, you're likely going to end up in solitary confinement, which is an enclosed and segregated cell where you're kept for, in New York, it's 23 hours a day without human interaction. Um, and prisoners can be put in there indefinitely. Um, so that is just one of the consequences. Of course, uh, there are lots of other consequences, both um, more and less significant. They, of course, um, they could be put on keep lock, right? Like if you don't want to go to your job, fine, you'll stay in your cell all day. You'll miss out on being able to go to the recreation yard and move your body. You'll miss out on being able to get visits from your family or use the phone to call your loved ones. You'll miss out on all those basic human entitlements that become, quote, privileges behind bars. And so that those are really the levers of power that prison officials deploy when requiring and enforcing incarcerated people to perform labor behind bars. What were you able to glean about uh, workplace safety for prisoners, obviously who occupy a whole range of different jobs, but since you're saying that the kind of protections that ostensibly workers get in this country outside of prison don't apply to imprisoned workers, then um, what kind of working conditions might they face? That's a good question. Um, it is true that in some factories, in prison factories, um, the working conditions can be pretty bad, pretty dangerous. Now, I don't know that they're all like that. Um, in fact, I believe that they are not. And I also believe that you know, in those most common, the most mundane jobs that many prisoners are doing, the landscaping, the, the, the janitor work, the kitchen work, for the most part, those jobs are not too dangerous. Um, but if a worker were injured on those jobs, they would have relatively little recourse. You know, they can go to the, um, the nurse on staff, they might get treated, but they don't have any protections under employment law as workers because they are not legally construed as workers. Now, those jobs aside, it is true. And as, as in fact, as one uh, prisoner told me, he had actually been in Attica during the Attica uprising. And one of the things they were uprising against, he told me, were the horrendous working conditions in the Attica factory. So New York state prisons, like a lot of state prison systems, they tend to run their own factories and they and they make a variety of things. So here in New York, um, prisoners make license plates as, as we often know, but they also make things like the grills and the park benches that are in New York State parks. They work in call centers. They make a variety of um, uniforms and other items for various state agencies and nonprofit organizations. Um, so they do quite a bit of work for the state. Um, and I think that in part because of the, the Attica resistance, those conditions have certainly improved, but there are still places where those factory conditions are pretty difficult. Workers told me about how, um, how hot the workplace was, how hard they were working, how prisoners did in fact get injured on the job, but there's not much to do about it. They could put in for a change of jobs. They could um, go to the nurse, but that's it. They're not protected under OSHA and their workplaces are not regulated under OSHA as workplaces. 
I'm speaking with sociologist Erin Hatton. She's the editor of Labor and Punishment, Work in and Out of Prison. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You mentioned a few minutes ago about how deeply ingrained in U.S. culture is this idea of work and its value, its redeeming value, the dignity of work. And that is not something that is only uh, shared by workers in this country, but is promulgated by the state, in effect, through the prisons, that that work for prisoners is supposed to be an edifying experience. Can you tell us about that rationale? That's right. You know, if you really start to dissect the rhetoric around work and punishment in America, it's very interesting and also kind of convoluted. So on the one hand, you have... um, state officials in a variety of capacities arguing that work will rehabilitate prisoners. They will get better through um, performing menial labor behind bars. At the same time, and sometimes in the same breath or in the same document, they will say that work is part of their punishment. You can't just have them sitting there idle. And idleness in American culture is that's really what clarifies, you know, that is what shows Americans' view of work because it's by how strongly people speak against, quote, idleness or laziness. People will vehemently hate the idea of someone getting something for nothing and that nothing is not working or not working appropriately um, or to expectations. And so prison officials, state officials will talk at length about how it's both somehow beneficial and also punitive in the same way. We need to discipline these people. We need to teach them things like a work ethic, how to work, how to do a job. They often suggest that these skills will enable them to find employment later on. But of course, what all of this rhetoric is doing is one, suggesting that people who are living behind bars have not already had jobs, which is not the case. It's suggesting that they don't already have a work ethic, which is not the case. It's suggesting um, uh, convolutedly that work is both rehabilitation and punishment. And when you look at those side by side, you realize that that can't possibly be the case. I I would argue that they need to choose one and stick to it. Um, But so it kind of reveals that this rhetoric is, is really a facade and a tool to justify and enforce incarcerated labor. This may be an impossible question given the insufficient data, but is it possible to, especially with public sector prisons, to do in a sort of an accounting in which the kind of labor that's performed by prisoners is set against the cost of their incarceration? To what degree does their labor pay for their incarceration? That's an interesting question. I mean, it's complicated to answer because, in fact, we have increased incarceration, right, in this era of mass incarceration in which incarceration has skyrocketed over the last several decades, although now it's it's remaining steady and declining ever so slightly. But we've seen this kind of mass incarceration of Americans and specifically African-American men. Um, And so, and that project, that incarcerated project has been enormously expensive. So yes, one could absolutely argue that the labor that incarcerated people perform behind bars offsets some of the costs of that incarceration. But the costs of their incarceration are skyrocketing because of America's incarcerated project, because we have chosen this as as an answer, as a way to regulate and control and discipline a population, a whole population of people. Um, so you could certainly do some creative math and, and see how much um, their labor would really contributes to um, and offsets the cost of this carceral project. But even still, even with those costs, some of those costs offset, the expense of mass incarceration for states and the US government is extreme. So would it be then fair to say that 
that mass incarceration needs to be seen as a political project above all, rather than, say, a more simplistic, economistic idea that incarceration is simply about trying to control the labor of people. I mean, one hears this especially about for-profit prisons, which are not the majority of prisons, that the profit motive is is a driver. But would it be fair to say the bigger driver is really a political project of social control? That's absolutely the case. I mean, I would argue that, yes, prison labor is an important part of this broader carceral project, but it is not the driver. Um, I would argue that we've seen this expansive carceral project unfold and, and be deployed very strategically, even consciously, by state officials, um, not as a way to harness their labor, but that has been a side effect, a side strategy to control that population, to dominate it, to subjugate it, and extract some surplus value from them while living behind bars. But that's not the driver behind this carceral project. That has been kind of an offshoot of this project, a need to manage and control them behind bars. But the project itself has been um, undertaken to control a population out of, out of America's really racist public and criminal policy that targeted certain groups as problems to be controlled, um, criminalized, incarcerated, and certainly not rehabilitated, not helped, not um, helped forward, not um, protected. Well, let me ask you uh, then to back up and give us a bit of a history of prison labor in this country. What are the origins of prisoners being forced to work? Work as punishment is not new. Um, it's certainly not simply a, a product of this current moment of mass incarceration in the United States. Work as a form of discipline is very long and um, uh, an important piece of American culture coming from England um, with it, the role of workhouses and poor houses for poor people, right? And so if people were taken into a charity, strict work and discipline were seen as a very necessary component of those spaces, so much so that they were called workhouses. But okay, but over the course of America's carceral history, um, you, there are two key moments where you see um, incarceration and forced labor really peak and come to the fore. This was first after um, emancipation um, when slavery was finally ended in the South. Um, after some, you know, the moment of reconstruction, you saw suddenly this time where white Southerners sought to incarcerate um, former enslaved people in order to extract labor from them. So they were effectively, sometimes they were even like kidnapping children from the street and they imposed all these kind of tenuous laws like vagrancy laws that said, oh, if I stop you on the street and you don't have proof of employment on you, then you can be incarcerated. And that's what they did. And so this was really, this was very clearly a way to both dominate and extract these workers' labor. They were said, um, formerly enslaved people were actually said to be lazy if they wanted to, say, own their own farms and work on their own farms rather than the plantations where they used to be enslaved, right? That was what was lazy in Southern culture, which is just shows just how convoluted the thinking was and how they can twist the words in ways that no longer keep their meaning. Um, and so they were um, black men and women and black children were actively targeted, um, criminalized, incarcerated, and effectively re-enslaved on plantations. And their work, and then also later on the chain gang, and their work helped recreate the South after the Civil War. It was directly contributed to their modernization and their industrialization. The fact that the South shifted from um, an agricultural plantation 
slave-based society to a more modern one, but still based on enslaved labor through the forced incarceration and forced re-enslavement of African-Americans who had been formerly enslaved. Okay, so that's a key moment um, where these two um, major American forces coincide, the incarceral state and forced labor. Um, this does decline somewhat over time through, again, major resistance, through mass migration, um, through changing laws, though still, we, you know, the criminalization of African-Americans has remained very steady over the course of American history since then. And the um, increased incarceration of African-Americans has remained, um, you know, stalwart piece of American culture. But through the 20th century, there was a shift in at least the belief about what prisons should do or could do. And there was a shift, this shift entailed a movement away from seeing prisons as just spaces of punishment towards ones of rehabilitation. And so this is known as the rehabilitation ideal. It was believed that prisons could and should rehabilitate um, criminals, people behind bars. Um, and this ideal, and of course it wasn't always enacted and enforced in ways that one would hope, but this ideal remained in place really until um, the late 60s and 70s with a reversal of kind of American political views of crime and incarceration with a, a new growing widespread belief in the need to quote, get tough on crime, to get tough on criminals. And this coincided, perhaps not surprisingly, with black activism in the United States in the 60s, when when um, black Americans were pushing for rights, when they were pushing for the right to welfare, as in the welfare rights movement, when they were pushing for the right to be free from discrimination and harassment and to um, get equal employment. This is when we saw this shift um, and a rise in incarceration, a rise in the incarceration specifically of African-Americans and a shift in this rhetoric about the need to get tough um, on crime, promoting this criminalization and incarceration. And then the prison labor that has come out of that was an offshoot of that trend. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with Erin Hatton. She's the editor of Labor and Punishment, Work in and Out of Prison, which was published by UC Press. She's also the author of Coerced, and she's associate professor of sociology at the University of Buffalo. So you uh, were describing the upswell of activism amongst African-Americans, especially culminating in the 1960s. There were all these urban rebellions. Then in the 1970s, the beginning of mass incarceration and the heightened criminalization of African-Americans. And I wanted to ask you, staying with that moment, that moment of real political ferment in the 1960s and 70s, you mentioned the Attica Rebellion in 1971 in New York State. There was a great deal of prison militancy by incarcerated activists, people who became activists. There were hunger strikes. There were labor strikes. What happened in terms of prison work in this moment of militancy and solidarity by prisoners? During that time, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that um, the prisoners' rights movement was so strong was because of the terrible work conditions they were facing behind bars, right? So there are lots of reasons why they were both activists and even militant and pushing against their mistreatment, pushing for rights. Um, but the bad labor conditions was definitely one of them. Um, you know, as, as formerly incarcerated people told me, you know, they had people losing fingers um, in the Attica factory. They, um, a, a, a guy told me, you know, he had worked in the steel mills before being incarcerated and he had, which were no havens for, they're not known for being safe workplaces. Um, 
And that was nothing, he said, nothing compared to the Attica factory. And so they faced pretty bad conditions. They also faced discrimination and mistreatment, the African-American prisoners did. And so they were pushing for change. And through the Attica uprising, they did get some change, but those changes were very modest. So one of the key changes that came out of that was um, a system of grievances. So prisoners nowadays can actually file grievances if um, if something goes wrong, if they're mistreated, if um, they believe they weren't, if they were discriminated against on the job, what have you, they can file a grievance. And so th there was not even, there was no recourse for prisoners to confront problems, um, the, the immense power that officers held over them. There was nothing they could do beforehand. Now they can file a grievance, but as one of the formerly incarcerated people that I interviewed told me, he said, well, yeah, you can file a grievance nowadays, but you're just grieving the same people who grieved you, right? And so this system is broadly, like it, it's there, and many uh, incarcerated people, people do regularly file grievances, but it's a very limited form of recourse. They, can, they only find justice if there is a clear... Um, going against the prison rules. And almost all of the prison rules favor the prison itself and the officers who work there, not the people who live there who are incarcerated. Um, and so it's a very modest and very limited way that they can resist um, the immense power that officers hold over their lives. But there is what, it is a way. It is in fact in place. Um, I also uh, interviewed a former incarcerated person who was part of a class action lawsuit against um, one of the things that they were suing New York State prison system about was discrimination in terms of work assignments and um, and discriminatory treatment on the job. And they actually eventually won that lawsuit, which is incredible given the difficulty of launching, carrying out, and actually winning a lawsuit for any regular person, let alone for prisoners. But I should also note, during the course of that lawsuit, he um, faced retribution from prison guards and on some kind of trumped up charge, some trumped up accusation, he was put in solitary confinement and sentenced to solitary confinement for five years, where he, he actually stayed there, ended up staying there for two years straight without human interaction until, but he also filed a grievance against that and ultimately won that as well. But by then he had been there for two years in solitary. So there is some recourse nowadays because of the prisoner rights movement and their militism and activism behind bars, but it's still very limited. One of the essays in the collection you edited, Labor and Punishment, discusses the reinstatement of the chain gang in North Carolina as a response to prisoner activism in the 1970s. And I wondered if you could tell us briefly about that. That's right. So Professor Amandabel Hewitt, she's a historian, she looked at this really interesting moment. There's this gap between um, when North Carolina, the state of North Carolina, actually abolished the chain gang in 1971 but then just four years later, in 1975, they brought it back, they reinstated it, and they expanded it. And so she wanted to know why, what happened during that moment. Um, and what she found through her historical analysis of documents, which are fascinating, um, she found that even though prison labor had become less profitable, and that was one of the reasons why they got rid of it, it just wasn't making enough money. It wasn't supporting the prison. So even though prison labor and specifically the chain gang had become less profitable, she found that state officials brought it back and made it stronger than ever in order to undermine prisoners' labor activism, right? They wanted to crush um, the prisoners who were trying to impose work stoppages, who were trying to unionize. Um, to crush the prisoners' rights movements. And, and one of the things that they were coalescing around was their labor rights. And so they brought the chain gang back as a way to dominate the workers, to crush their activism, to stamp it out, to separate the prisoners into different workplaces. 
Um, so even though it wasn't profitable, right? And so that is another piece of evidence that the importance of prison labor in this contemporary American mo moment is more about domination and subjugation than it is about exploitation and extracting surplus value, though that is also important as well. You write that the 1970s were a turning point for the uh, regulation of prison labor and that in the 1970s, the right to organize in a union was curtailed. Can you tell us about that? Right. So during this time, that, you know, early 70s moment of where there was really kind of, I would say, exciting, other people would say scary um, prisoner activism, right? You had prisoners across America working together, um, uh, demanding unions, demanding rights. And this just fed into um, many officials and, and regular Americans' belief that we just needed to get tough. We needed to um, tamp down on that activism. Um, and so, but at that time, you know, it seems strange to us now because the, the thought of union prisons just seems like an impossibility, but it wasn't then. They were actively trying to organize. Um, and so the laws were put in place that but laws had not yet existed and now we just take them for granted. But that was the moment when laws were put in place to prohibit prisoners, incarcerated workers from organizing labor unions. And are there attempts to organize now, uh, even though workers in prison don't have the right to organize in labor unions, but attempts to come together collectively over working conditions and labor issues? Absolutely. Um, you know, most often, and even in the 1970s, labor issues were just one part of the issues that prisoner activists were organizing around, right? So it's, it's less common that the workplace and particular workplace issues are the sole issue that they're trying to organize around, but you absolutely see incarcerated people organizing together within a prison and across prisons to make demands to make demands about their wages to or to use their labor as their point of leverage to sit out from a job um, to enact a labor stoppage to say we don't want to be treated this way behind bars we demand um, better food better treatment whatever it is because what we do know in terms of living behind bars, what what we Americans have actually come to accept about American prisons is that it's the depths of the punishment don't ever seem to end. It's not just that these folks are punished by being incarcerated, but once you're living behind bars, you get terrible food, you get not enough food, you are put in um, uh, you have a, a terrible mattress, you don't get to communicate with your family, you're put in solitary confinement, you face violence on a daily basis. Like there's just depths and depths and depths of punishment. And when they start to push back against that, whatever the layer is, um, work is one of the key points where they do so. Sociologist Erin Hatton is my guest. We're discussing Labor and Punishment, Work in and Out of Prison, which she edited. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about how COVID has affected the lives of prisoners, given how rampantly infections have spread through prisons and given what little safeguards um, have been taken to protect prisoners. At this point, can any conclusions be drawn about how COVID has affected the working lives of prisoners during the pandemic? That's a great question. And the short answer is we just don't know. Um, like prisoners, like they're actually a great microcosm of the issues that came to the fore with COVID-19. What we saw here in, in the context of the pandemic was that the most vulnerable people, perhaps not surprisingly, suffered the most and were put most at risk and were least taken care of during this crisis you know meanwhile where we were many people were concerning with themselves about um, middle class folks ability to stay at home to work from home to be protected to get the proper masks or equipment um, to be able to 
get folks to do their grocery shopping for them or make deliveries to order things on Amazon rather than leaving their home. So many other people, the most vulnerable and marginalized of Americans, did not have those luxuries. Um, and prisoners, even more so, right? So they're necessarily, the, as part and parcel of incarceration in America, you do not get to physically distance yourself from someone else. Most of the time, folks are kept in the kind of a large warehouse where they're literally living on top of each other in bunk beds upon bunk beds upon bunk beds. There is no distancing. Um, they were not getting equipment. Many prisons might not even have a ready supply of soap to wash your hands. Um, they weren't getting tested on a regular basis. They were not adequately protected. They were put in a vulnerable position and they were kept there. And then poignantly, as we saw uh, outside of New York City, they were asked to dig graves for people dying from COVID outside of the prison, right? This was one of the jobs that they were put to. And there are pictures of incarcerated workers digging the graves for people who had passed away because of this pandemic. It's just, you don't get a, a clear crystallization of the dynamics that prisoners face in the context of COVID-19. And so while we don't know specifically how the, the pandemic affected their labor per se, we do know that they were suffering, they were scared, and they had no protection. Well, I wanted to ask you about COVID and workers, especially those workers who work putting out wildfires in California. Despite an order by the Supreme Court that California must reduce the number of people in its overcrowded prisons, the state has argued that it needs to keep the number of prisoners that it has so that, in fact, they can fight wildfires. And there were worries that COVID in prisons might reduce that labor population to fight wildfires. Tell us about that whole situation. The firefighting situation out West and in California in particular, but other places as well, is actually a really good counter example to one of my earlier arguments. So, so I said earlier that um, domination and subjugation are usually more important in the, in the current day context and the role that labor plays for prisoners and less so um, you know, extracting surplus value, less so exploitation. But that's not the case for the firefighters. What we've seen again and again in California, specifically with the Supreme Court case, but also firefighters across the West who are incarcerated, we've seen how important that labor is to those states' ability to fight fires. And really what that means is to fight climate change, the, the devastating consequences of climate change and also just the regular fires that happen in California. Um, so yes, the Supreme Court um, mandated that the state of California prison system needed to release nonviolent prisoners um, because of overcrowding. They found that the overcrowded conditions in the prisons violated um, their right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. And so they said that you need you needed to decrease your your um, prison population. And ultimately, the state of California refused. They said, we simply can't do so because those same nonviolent prisoners that you want us to release, we need them to be firefighters, to be low-wage, very low-wage firefighters who are often put in some of the most dangerous positions with relatively little training. Um, we can't release them. We need to use them for their labor. Um, and so this extraction of their labor, their labor that is coerced, even though some of these same incarcerated firefighters find meaning and, and importance and dignity in their work, even though they do so, their labor is also compelled and coerced. Um, and they're kept behind bars in order to extract that labor from them. And even more the case in the context of COVID-19, when their lives are put at risk, not only from fighting fires, but also from exposure to the pandemic, to COVID. The subtitle of your book is Work in and Out of Prison, and you and your co-authors argue that we shouldn't just think of prison labor as simply the experience of what happens for prisoners when they're incarcerated. 
uh, and work in prison. So I wanted to ask you about that and to ask you specifically how does the experience of prison follow workers into their work lives outside of prison? That's such a good question. And it follows them in so many ways. Um, One way that it follows them, and this is what I found in my research with formerly incarcerated people. um, So when they're working behind bars, you are basically trained to expect very little from, from your labor, certainly in terms of wages, also in terms of rights and, and dignity accorded to you and your labor. And so the people that I interviewed said to me, I'll, I'll take any job now that I'm, I'm, I got out of prison. I'll, I'll take McDonald's, I'll do anything, um, because how could I not when I got so little, when I was treated so poorly while working behind bars? I'll do anything not to have to go back there. And for many of them, that means working in pretty bad jobs and pretty bad working conditions. Um, So they're really kind of trained. They're primed to accept low wage, precarious, even dangerous work when they're released from prison. But it's also true that as uh, sociologist Gretchen Percher shows in her study, um, and she analyzed the kind of everyday work experiences of formerly incarcerated people on the job. It's, it's not just that formerly incarcerated people have trouble getting jobs, right? Which they do. We know they do from research that they kind of carry this stigma or this, this the Hester Prinz A that follows them and makes it difficult for them to get a decent job. But when they do get a job, which is less likely to be a quote, decent job, they're routinely mistreated on the job because of their past entanglement with the criminal justice system. They, they, they are routinely degraded. They're presumed to still be criminals. They're, um, and also there's a lot of pressure put on them because of parole or probation, right? The criminal justice system, when they're out of prison, that doesn't mean they're done with the criminal justice system. They're very much entangled with them. And there are a lot of requirements in their daily lives as to what they can and can't do. You know, they might have a curfew. They have to talk to their parole officer if they change jobs or get a raise or lose their jobs, or they have a problem with their supervisor at work, um, or if anything happens. Um, also, by the way, as Noah Zatz, the legal scholar argues in my book, um, that getting and keeping a job is often a condition of their freedom from incarceration. Like they can only have parole if they get a job. But this dynamic means that employers, employers of these oftentimes kind of crappy jobs, keep them crappy, mistreat them on the job, um, push them to work harder and longer, maybe even than they're paid for, because they can, because those workers are legally required to keep that job in order to stay out of prison as a condition of their parole. So you're saying that employers are, some employers are going to even be predatory about formerly incarcerated workers because they know they're particularly vulnerable to exploitation? That's absolutely right. It encourages that predatory nature. And it certainly, and it certainly kind of allows it to, to flourish, right? There's nothing stopping them because there is this large and ready and willing workforce, not because they want to, but because they have to accept subpar, subpar employment for subpar wages in subpar working conditions. Well, uh, let me end by asking you, how does the prison system itself feed into the way that formerly incarcerated workers go out into the world and face intensified exploitation and precariousness with work. Uh, Some prisons provide counseling and job training. To what degree does those sort of services, which ostensibly sound like they would be a benefit, how do some of those end up reinforcing the vulnerability of workers when they get out of prison? That's a good question. So many prisons do offer, or at least claim that they offer, um, job training and job counseling and uh, certifications. So maybe you can get certified in a certain skill and then show that certification to future employers. That's the idea. That's the rhetoric. That's the claim. But so often that's just 
it just doesn't pan out. Um, it really ends up being more rhetoric than reality because these workers come out of prison and even if they have a stack of certifications and many of them did, those the, the ones that I interviewed, um, they don't translate into employment in that area. Again and again, they find themselves in the only employers that are readily willing to hire them. And again, oftentimes those are the same predatory employers that are ready and willing to take advantage of them. And that is exactly why they're willing to hire them. So you see them ending up in construction or other difficult and dangerous jobs where they can be pushed and pushed and pushed for minimal pay. Um, so in all of these ways, the, the carceral states, their experience behind bars, but also their continuing experience with the carceral state once they leave prison, you know, having to meet with your parole officer on a weekly basis, having your parole officer actually follow you or go to work and talk to your supervisor behind your back and letting them know that you're a criminal or, you know, you know, like exposing you to discrimination and stigmatization in that way. All of these things follow formerly incarcerated people and pervade their work lives and really undermine their ability to leave prison behind them. Erin Hatton, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Erin Hatton is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. She is the editor of the collection Labor and Punishment, Work in and Out of Prison. That's published by UC Press and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. She's also the author of Coerced. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.